maybe about <clears throat> six or seven years ago, I was invited to be part of this bonding and I guess brainstorming cohort uh, that was made up of different community leaders in, in, in the city, Trinity Square. I mean, there were some from the mayor's office. It was a very interesting week, one of the most uh, uncomfortable weeks that I've ever experienced because I was just kind of thrown into this group and they had us doing all these weird icebreakers and stuff that I'm not used to. But anyways, it was, it was really cool because we got to know in a sort of a short period of time, just a, a concentrated week, um, a lot of the, the community uh, leaders. And so from that week of relationships was birthed this thing called Trinity Square Together. Um, and so that became uh, just a regular coming together of some of these community leaders who were just thinking about ways to, to bring people together, to bring community together, to improve the neighborhood. So many beautification projects and uh, block parties and care for the square, just so many different initiatives have happened uh, really in the last five years. Um, so we have been part of this for years when we had like a full team of our city love missionaries they were all super involved at one point we had eight city love missionaries urban missionaries who were uh, doing all kinds of things for trinity square together um, now it's a little smaller but Catherine is still <laughs> very much involved in the in the planning committee so anyways all that to say uh, this saturday is the the once a year block party that happens and it, and it happens right down the street, probably, I don't know, 500 yards. Uh, if you, if, this is Broad Street right here. If you just head down Broad, you'll come right into Trinity Square, uh, which is, you know, it's not the nicest area. It's a little crazy there. Um, but there's a church there, a Methodist church in a cultural center. And behind that church, there's a huge open area with a pavilion and a little bit of grass there and so that's where the block party takes place so I'm just putting it out there if you want to come to that next week you can just show up uh, we'll send a reminder this week if you want to volunteer there's always uh, ways to volunteer like with the kids um, or really anything we're, we're going to have a booth we always have a there's different organizations that do booths uh, so we'll have a booth there are we giving out anything Catherine drinks or something yeah. uh, probably lemonade or water or something but yeah it, it's it's fun it just it ends up turning into a prayer booth as we talk with people and then they come into the tent and we pray for them and they become christians and live happily ever after that's what's going to happen but if you want to if if you want to be a part of this uh let us know uh respond to the email the newsletter this week um or just show up you know, come with your kids, just come for a half an hour, an hour. It's an incredible way to see firsthand um, the neighborhood. It's a very beautiful, very eclectic, diverse community of people. Uh, it's probably the most diverse area in, in all of Rhode Island. It's incredible. 
Um, so yeah, come out and just be a part of it. Uh, just encourage you to do that. And it's not going to be hot. It's going to be cooler. I think uh, at the end of the week, the temps are supposed to come way down. Hallelujah. Uh, so, yeah. So think about that. Another thing, too, just exciting uh, piece of information to store in your mind is next week, we are going to have, there's a, a new ministry that's being birthed. It's called Revive New England. And the uh, founder of this new ministry is, his name is Greg Johnson. But it's not our Greg Johnson. <laughs> but I could actually see Greg doing something like this. This would be right up his alley uh, to revive New England. But uh, this is one of, my, one of my good friends. He's actually um, been on staff for years with InterVarsity in the Rhode Island area. And he's been on staff, I believe, at Sanctuary Church. But Greg is on fire. He is going to come and just share his vision next Sunday and preach the word to us. So I'm just kind of putting that out there. That's going to be exciting. I also invited him to the prayer meeting on Wednesday, our refresh gathering at 7. Uh, so if anybody wants to come out and just kind of get to know Greg a little bit, um, he'll be at the prayer meeting as well. So be praying for that. Well, I'm excited to share this word. I haven't preached in a while, so I forgot how to preach. No, I didn't. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Just warning you that um, I am gonna I am gonna maybe talk a little fast because I want to pack this in, and I don't have that much time. So fasten your seatbelt. Are you ready? Bring it on, Stacy. Yeah, in the front. Love it. All right, so. Not to start negative, but let me just paint the portrait here of the problem we're up against in this generation, and especially in this uh, greater Providence region that we find ourselves in. There is an ever-increasing disinterest amongst unchurched people in coming to church. They don't trust, many don't trust institutional churches and more and more buying into this delusion that the Christian faith is no longer relevant. And I wish that wasn't true and I would love to be just like optimistic, but statistics are overwhelmingly showing that the church, even in America, is in decline. Now, hopefully we can be speaking a different story in a year or six months or whatever at some point. But that just is what it is. We are moving toward, especially in, in New England, toward a post-Christian society. Now, there's always a low-hanging fruit, as some have called it. And what I mean is there are still people, there are still many people who will come to a church. Uh, maybe they grew up Christian. Maybe they fell away from it, trying to get back to it. Um, maybe they've just had some really favorable experiences with, with Christians. They had a Christian friend or whatever. Um, there are also some who are pretty lined up with Christian morals. I call them nice sinners. People who aren't Christian, but they just, they kind of vibe with the whole 
Christian thing, the church thing, trying to do good things for the city and all that. But what about the agnostics that are becoming ever-increasing? What about the, they call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns who don't have any kind of religious affiliation at all and pretty much don't even care and don't plan to. What about them? What about the people who are deeply skeptical of all things Christian? It seems like the uncontended uh, strategy of churches is to just have church services and hope that unchurched people will come in. Most don't, however. Again, some do, but most don't. Even in Providence, think about this, which is the, one of the least um, Bible-minded cities or whatever, least Christian cities in America, there are probably a hundred good churches Within a, within a short drive, not just in the city, but a little bit outside of the city. Like great gospel-preaching churches, wonderful churches, wonderful people. God moves, good music, just loving people. Our problem is not that there are not enough churches or enough Christians. Our problem is twofold. I'm going to share the two problems, but we're only going to talk about one today. First, churches spend most of their programming energy on those who are already Christian. And if it's a really spectacular program, they will attract Christians from other churches. Right? This is where a lot of the money goes, a lot of the energy goes. The Christian universe has become insular and very disconnected from the fabric of the wider culture. Many people, because of how they think and how they live, okay, many people out there, are reluctant to even come near a church. You know, consider the man who uses the F word in every sentence, or the woman who is a prostitute, or the drug addict who looks like a drug addict, or the person who doesn't own any church clothes, whatever that means. That doesn't mean much in our church, because we, well, I, don't know. I dress a little slobby. I'm kind of nice today with the, this is a little upgrade. <laughs> but the experience of church feels a million miles away to these people. And that's one problem that we're facing today. And we're not going to discuss that this morning, like I said, but I will be talking about it tonight at the core gathering. But the other problem is this, and this is where we're going today. A lack of supernatural power. In the things that churches organize, there is often nothing that cannot be easily explained. You know, it's all good activity, right? You know, but it's just words. It's just good works. An unbeliever or outsider who gets close enough to witness Christians often, too often, sees nothing supernatural. 
They walk away and think, nice people, interesting talk, good music. But nothing blows them away. The absence of the demonstration of the Spirit of God reduces the effect it has on people to nothing more than maybe a brief moment of inspiration. So what I'm saying is that without the manifestation of God's power in some fashion, the hearts and minds of unchurched people will not be penetrated. And I think this is even more relevant for us as a church because for 20 years, we have always had a heart to to reach people who aren't being reached by other churches, uh, to reach people who are especially far from God or least likely to step foot in a church. I remember several years ago walking down uh, Thayer Street over on the east side and seeing, this is like the early 2000s, so there was like a group of very moody uh, teenagers or maybe they were young adults or young, you know, young, young adults, um, you know, just with the whole eyeshadow and the tattoos and the whole piercings and whatever subculture that was back in the time, but they <laughs> didn't look very approachable. But I just remember just like walk, kind of walking by them and thinking uh, in my heart, it's going to take a lot to reach, to reach those guys. You know, clever little word, um, you know, nice little Bible study, come to church. They don't want to come to church. They they don't look like church people. They're not going to fit in to church culture. And the Lord kind of spoke to me that it's going to take more. It's going to take the power of God to resurrect people into newness of life, just like it did in my life. I mean, it, it, it took a lot. You know, I didn't come to Christ in a church building. I didn't come to Christ through just, um, I don't know, little, a little Bible study or just some nice things that Christians did for me. Um, the power of the Holy Spirit came on my life in a, in a time when I was doing massive amounts of drugs and I l- did not look like anybody who would come to a church service and yet the spirit of god came to where i was and ripped me out of my darkness and planted me on solid ground that's the power of god and that's what's needed well let's walk through we're going to look at acts chapter 9 i'm just going to kind of walk you through this chapter like i said i'm going to talk kind of fast but uh, so i'm just going to I'm going to go through Acts chapter 9. But Saul, now Saul is the great apostle Paul, later named Paul, Paul the apostle who wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But this is his story. But Saul wasn't always a nice Christian. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he was a kind of a Jewish leader, zealot, very intense you know, kind of fighting against these Christian, you know, what he thought was a cult, really. So he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked, 
the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, in other words, this Christian way, these followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy was intense, okay? He may have been the the most evil of all these uh, religious zealots in the day. I mean, he lived during the time of Christ. I don't know how he processed who Jesus was, but this is where he's at in this point of his life persecuting Christians. Now, as he went on his way, you know, to go out and persecute these Christians, he approached Damascus and suddenly, here's the supernatural, right? Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Whatever that exactly means, but this light, this glory of the Lord just shone around him and he could see it. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Saul said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? It's a good question. Who are you? Are you? I think in so many words he was saying, I'm not sure that I know who you are. I think I've been off in my understanding of you. I've always found this question interesting because, you know, he was this like hardcore follower of the Lord as a Jewish leader. He, you know, he, but he knew that this was the Lord's voice speaking to him. So there's like a moment of, confusion and epiphany Um, i also think about how you know in the preceding chapters it says that saul was there during the stoning of stephen approving of the bloody murder really of just this crowd mob crowd coming around stephen these jewish leaders just hurling rocks and i mean can you imagine Think of it. And, and Stephen is there. You know the story, or maybe you do. You might not know the story, but this was one of the, this one of the ordinary Christians, a deacon in the, in the early church, and he was preaching the gospel, and people started to not like what he was saying and started to stone him, but there's some powerful things that happen in that story. It says that the the face of Stephen looked like the face of an angel. At one point, as he's being stoned, he's looking up to heaven and saying, I see heaven open. I see Jesus at the right hand of God. He even, while he's being stoned, forgives his enemies as it's happening. You know, Stephen was watching this whole thing. Imagine. You think that didn't affect Saul's heart as, you know, he was watching the stoning of Stephen and how Stephen reacted. So I think it was already in Saul a little bit just to question and wonder if he was really on the right side of things. Maybe this Jesus really is Lord. Well, the Lord responds to Saul's question, who are you? 
and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. (laughs) One sentence, stinging sentence from the Lord. Saul realized that he had been persecuting not only Christians, but God himself. Well, God says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were uh, traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. This is what we would call a supernatural wonder. You know, it's something unusual that happens. Something surprising that cuts through. It's a demonstration of the reality of the living God. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And it's interesting, this divine judgment that comes upon Saul in this moment of blindness. Basically, God uh, touches Paul, light shines from heaven, voice uh, gives him a command, but strikes him with blindness. Can you imagine if that was part of your conversion story? But you, if you kind of pull out clues in some of Paul's writings, you, you get this idea that he had some struggle with his eyes, right? Sometimes he wrote large or had other people write his letters. That may have been the thorn in the flesh, possibly, that he wanted to be fully healed from. But maybe God just, you know, affected his eyesight permanently as a reminder of his rebellion. We don't know. That's just a speculation. But Paul, Saul here, probably thought he was going to be blind for the rest of his life. Well, anyways, the story goes on. So they led him by the hand, led Saul by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This tiny verse, I I don't want to overlook because... I just want you to think about the intensity of Paul's reaction to God's touch on his life. He was distraught. Can you imagine how overcome he was with guilt and with sorrow? Crushed in his heart, contrite, for Dick wouldn't even eat, realizing he had been persecuting God's people and God himself. This is a deep repentance. Then it goes on and says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. I love this uh, clarity that Ananias had with God. Uh, It's like just a clear conversation. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this Saul guy, and he's he's terrifying. He's scary. It's interesting, his... um, his response to the Lord, obviously he was really close 
and intimate with, with God that he, he just kind of pushes back. I mean, in so many words, he's saying, yeah, Lord, I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> this guy is, are you sure he's saved? <laughs> um, it, it's kind of funny. Actually, it's a little humorous. Um, but the Lord doesn't have time for debates here. He just says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show this Saul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. <laughs> so Ananias departed, entered the house, and laid his hands on Saul. I love the first words that came out of Ananias's mouth. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. He welcomed this crazy person into the family of God. This one who had persecuted and probably had Christians murdered and dragged into prison. And here Ananias is, in so many words, saying, welcome to the family, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now get this, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. I love this story because Ananias didn't even pray for Saul. Isn't that cool? He just said, I'm here so that you will be filled with the Spirit and regain your eyes. And the Spirit just moved. <laughs> and it happened. Ananias might have been even surprised at that. Oh, okay, I guess we don't even need to pray here. God's moving then Saul rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Again, these are the ones that he was trying, like literally a few days earlier, was coming to drag out of their homes men and women and throw them in prison, put them in chains. And now he's, uh, he's having church with them. He's having fellowship with them. So Saul here was a newborn baby Christian, right? It's funny how I feel like we coddle sometimes new believers and we kind of give them this idea like, oh, you're new, you don't really know anything. You know, you should just sort of just sit around and receive and learn for you know, a few years until you get built up so that you can, you can go out there and, and, and share the gospel with people. Well, Paul didn't do that. He was like a Christian for like four days or five days or whatever it was. And he is, well, I'll read it. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. And all who heard Saul preach were amazed and said, is this not, wait, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, and, and didn't he come here for this purpose? You know, to persecute Christians? But it says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. So this conversion of Saul itself was really a powerful demonstration of the reality and the power of 
Jesus Christ. You know, what could the Jews say about Saul's transformation? I mean, they, it must have just shook them to the core. I mean, this was the number one superstar persecutor of the Christian faith, and now, now he, he had changed sides, and he was one of them. It's one of the great demonstrations of God's power when God takes somebody who is a notorious sinner or evil per person and, and just flips them upside down. One of my friends has been ministering to this, I don't even know the guy's story, but I remember hearing the name, Son of Sam, uh, this, I don't even know what kind of crimes this guy committed, but he, he, he turned to the Lord in prison. And so one of my friends is kind of doing some sort of, um, I think, writing a book, actually, about, about the guy's life. But it's, it's a demonstration of God's power to change a heart. I know for my own conversion, I was filled with rage. I got in fights constantly. I was angry with everybody on the planet. I was miserable. I was depressed. I was a drug addict. I didn't pray. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know God. I was incredibly guilty, carried around a weight of guilt at 21 years of age. And one touch of the Spirit in my life as I was walking down a road, it wasn't to Damascus, but I was walking down a road in Springfield, Mass., and the guilt flew off of me the hatred in my heart, and it was deep. I mean, it was just flushed clean. And God baptized me with just a love. I didn't even know what was happening to me. And all I wanted to do was pray. Any Christian I talked to, I was like, do you want to pray? You want to get, you want to get together and pray? I just wanted to pray. I just wanted to pray all the time. I prayed while I walked, prayed in the bed, prayed in the shower, prayed at work, prayed. I just couldn't stop praying. This was, at least to me, a powerful demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's partly how I knew that God was real. But also, people who knew me really closely um, knew <laughs> this is either this is some new drug he is on or that, you know, even my parents were like, oh, I don't know, like, this is a phase. This has got to be a phase, some new thing he's into. He's always into something, you know, because I was. That's how I was as a kid, always into some new thing. And, uh, but here I am 33 years later, and it's been a powerful witness to my parents. Anyways, moving on, when... Many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Uh, so they lower him in a basket and help him to escape. This is Paul's life. You know, he's always on the run, being hunted, being hated, plots to kill him. All right, I'm going to speed it up a little bit so I can get to my, get to my conclusion. So the, the story in Acts 9 shifts to Peter, and Peter heals somebody um, who was bedridden for eight years. Uh, you can read about that. But it says, 
all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, this healed person, and turned to the Lord. Just store that up in your mind. It's a pattern. Something supernatural happens. God demonstrates his reality. And people from all over Lydda and Sharon turn to Christ. Signs and wonders follow those who believe, but also belief follows signs and wonders. And then there's another story of, it's an incredible story of Tabitha uh, or Dorcas, who was known for her good works and uh, really beautiful lady, seemed well-loved. A lot of people here mourning her, her death. And Peter comes, clears basically clears the room out and raises her from the dead. Well, that'll wake people up in a region. Because people knew her. She had a reputation. You know, people loved Dorcas. The like, word on the street was like she died and people were just crying about it. And then she's alive. And here it is again. Here's the pattern. It became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Do you see the pattern? The disciples go out and they do things that cannot be explained. They demonstrated the kingdom reality. It's not just that they uh, performed, you know, good works, good deeds, you know, sharing and doing nice things for people. Uh, many religious people do good things, right? Many non-religious people, many atheists do. There's a lot of nice people that do nice things, right, for others. But the work of Jesus through his people is different. They demonstrated the power of Jesus over sin, over depression, over demons, over sickness, and over death itself. God did things in their midst that could not be easily explained away. In the Gospel of Mark, it says this, And they, the followers of Jesus, went out and preached everywhere, comma, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. You see the connection there? The expansion of God's kingdom is always connected to the preaching of the word and the power, the demonstration of God's power. Paul even said it. I came to, when I came to you, I didn't come with word only. Now he didn't say, I didn't come to you with any preaching at all. I just came with demonstrations of power. He didn't say that. He came with the preaching of the gospel. He was a powerful preacher. But he said, I did not come with word only, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I came with deep conviction. I came with something that could not be explained. So let me bring this in for a landing. What about today? Christians hold very different opinions, of course, about whether or not God still does supernatural things. Some, in fact, say that miracles um, ceased in the first century. Uh, others say that miracles continue on. Are some miracles fake? Yeah, of course. There's counterfeits and people exaggerate and fabricate things and make things up, of course. 
you know, we shouldn't be gullible, but we should always test things. And yet we also shouldn't be surprised that the God who created the universe from nothing and holds it all together can occasionally do something that defies the laws of nature. Amen? <laughs> I listened to a, a, a John Piper uh, message called Our Signs and Wonders for Today. And it was so cool. I wish I could see it. I was just listening to it. But I, I guess he had two stacks of books in front of him. <laughs> and one stack was like George Whitfield and John Owen and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon, a lot of the scholars that he you know, tends to, to go to. And then on the other, he had, you know, people who, theologians who believe in the continuing of the gifts of the Spirit. And he just gave the argument of both of these camps, both of these stacks of books. And it was so powerful because, like I said, this first stack was, he said, they don't believe that miracles happen, or in some cases they might say are, they're not normative for the kingdom of God anymore. So even though these scholars, in most things, he would resonate with their theology, he said, I do not find their argument compelling for discrediting the supernatural and the working of miracles. But he kind of landed in the middle, and I'm, I, I could resonate with that because there is something unique about the miracles of Jesus. And there's no question that nobody has come even close to the kinds of miracles that Jesus did or even that the apostles did. It was a unique season of the birth of the church. However, there are miracles that are done if we will trust in the Lord and believe. Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So there are many ways that God manifests his reality and power, and it seems, from my perspective looking at church history, that God does certain things. He almost emphasizes certain gifts in certain seasons, right? Like, for example, from the early 1900s to the, I think, like the mid-50s, there was a tremendous healing ministry and movement that happened, especially in the States, and then it seemed that changed a bit. I mean, there was uh, the gift, the powerful supernatural gift of speaking in tongues and the prophetic word that happened like through the Azusa Street revival. So different manifestations of God's power seem to come in different seasons because God is, I don't know, God does what he wants to do. He knows what's best. So I think for us, it's not... We can't, like, pick how we want God to move, right? He's God. But we can say, God, rend the heavens and come down. Show your power. 
to this generation, to this city. Do it however God you want to do it. We don't really care how it's done, but we pray that our preaching would be accompanied by supernatural activity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whether that is deep conversions of notorious sinners or physical healings or the casting out of demons, which I've seen that firsthand. I've seen that happen. One of this kid, 19 years old, just that I was in a prayer meeting with in New York City, uh, like two and a half hour prayer meeting, and then he, you know, we saw him in the subway station, and and there was just, you know, we 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 came in, we were a little bit after him, came into the subway station. This is like around 50th Street or whatever in New York City, and there's just this guy who is weeping on the ground, um, the subway station. And so I forgot this kid's name, the kid that we were in the prayer meeting with, but we're like, what? what's going on? And he's just like, yeah, I don't know. It was a demon. And he just explained the whole uh, situation. And I just said, yeah, in the name of Jesus, come out of him. And like, this thing happened, and he just like hit the ground and kind of squirmed like a fish. And the Spirit of God came on him, and he broke for all to see who were waiting for the subway. <laughs> Welcome to New York City. <laughs> I think about the tangible presence of God that we've experienced many times in this church, the baptisms of the Holy Spirit. Remember the disciples saying, oh, you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, and they pray, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on those believers. Prophecy, the secrets of the heart being revealed, wild answers to specific prayer. How about things when God puts on your heart something that does not make any sense at all and says, I am going to do this. He's done that to me many times, right? Maybe that's the spirit of faith. One time it was so ridiculous what God was telling me to do, and God said, and I want you to tell your mom and dad. I want you to go and sit down with them and tell them what I am going to do. And they are not going to think that it makes any sense at all but they're going to know that there is power in the Lord. And that's exactly how it went down. <laughs> oh, I could tell you so many stories. Wild answers to specific prayer. Orchestration of circumstances. Divine judgment. Signs and wonders. Dreams and visions. Power coming through the preaching of the word of God. Have you experienced that when the preaching of the word? I remember in New York City, sometimes my pastor would, would preach, and you know, it's just a simple message, but you'd have a thousand people, you know, just bawling and weeping and crying out for mercy. What is that? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Only God can 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 do that work. So my invitation to us today, we're going to take the rest of this service. We'll take about 10 minutes. And I just want us to turn this place into a, into a, into a house of prayer. And I want us to you know, not just think about these things, go eat lunch, but let's, let's pray some earnest prayers right now and ask God to move in our church, in our city, in supernatural ways. We've seen supernatural things happen but we need more. 
We've seen people come to Christ. We've seen people overwhelmed by the power of God, by the presence of God, by the preaching of the word. But we, we want to see that more and more. We want God to display his reality and power to even the thickest unbelievers in this city that we live in. We need that demonstration of power. So we're going to take time. Uh, the musicians are just going to play for us. Uh, you, can, you can shut in right where you are. You don't have to move anywhere. You can move if you want. Um, you can you know, go into a corner or something like that or up in the front, whatever you want to do, and just pray for a while. But let's, let's be earnest. You know, let's, let's pray. You can pray with the person next to you, with your spouse, or you can, you're free to pray with a few people if you want or just pray alone. But that's my ask this morning. Can, can we just do this sincerely? Let's pray for, for 10 minutes and ask God to do what only God can do. Amen? Amen. All right, let's do it. Thanks, musicians.